Welcome to another episode of Christopher Wynne's I Never Knew That, opening a door onto a world of knowledge, adventure and surprise, as we travel around Britain and Ireland in search of entertaining stories and fascinating facts that will make you want to exclaim again and again, I never knew that. I'm Christopher Wynne, author of the I Never Knew That book series about the countries and peoples of Britain and Ireland, and I will be your guide as we travel around the regions of England, Scotland, Wales and Ireland, meeting friends along the way and learning about the people and places that make these beautiful islands the most magical place on earth. In this episode, we explore the East Midlands, taking in a quiet corner in Bedfordshire, where the celestial light shone most brightly, the oldest house in England in Huntingdonshire, the room in Rutland where the gunpowder plot may have been hatched, the burial place in Leicestershire of the last Plantagenet king, and George Washington's ancestral home in Northamptonshire. Stop 1. Cocaine Hatley, Bedfordshire. Turn east of the busy A1 near Sandy, home of the Royal Society for the Protection of Birds, and you soon find yourself in a wide, picturesque landscape of green fields, hedgerows and gentle hills, resting beneath big skies that are always blue, with fluffy white clouds. Far down a lonely lane, at the crest of a rise and girdled with trees, a church slumbers at the gates of an ancient hall, that not so long ago was surrounded by one million apple trees, the largest Cox's orange pippin orchard in the world. This is Cocaine Hatley, the peaceful place where Long John Silver and Peter Pan's Wendy lie asleep in the shade of an ash tree. Here, the celestial light shone most brightly. According to the most beautiful woman in England at the time, Lady Diana Cooper, daughter of the Duchess of Rutland and Henry Cocaine Harry Cust, whose family owned Cocaine Hatley Hall. Diana spent much of her childhood there, and described the hall as a place where the clouds cast no shadows, but were always fleecy white, where grass was greener and taller, strawberries bigger and more plentiful, and above all, where garden and woods would never change. Hall and church were built by Judge Sir John Cockaine in the early 15th century, and although both have been much altered over the years, an extraordinary atmosphere of bygone days hangs over the place. A stillness, a sense of peace, the sound of childish laughter, <laughs> and yet all of it tinged with sadness. 
under an ash tree in the churchyard, a little group of graves rest beneath a simple grey headstone. And here lie the poet William Ernest Henley, his wife Hannah, and their daughter Margaret. Henley suffered from tuberculosis as a youngster, which led to the amputation of one of his legs. And while he was recuperating from further surgery in hospital in Edinburgh, he befriended another young man afflicted by ill health, the writer Robert Louis Stevenson. Stevenson's stepson, Lloyd Osborne, later described Henley as A great glowing, massive-shouldered fellow with a big red beard and a crutch. Jovial, astoundingly clever, and with a laugh that rolled like music, he had an unimaginable fire and vitality. He swept one off one's feet. And it is no wonder that in his novel Treasure Island, Stevenson used Henley as his model for the one-legged pirate Long John Silver. <laughs> Henley's most famous work was the poem Invictus, Under the bludgeonings of chance, my head is bloody but unbowed. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Which was written while he was recovering from his surgery and is about overcoming adversity and staying strong in the face of misfortune. The poem has come to epitomise backbone and the stiff upper lip and is often quoted as a way of motivating those who are facing injuries or setbacks or hardship. Prince Harry, for example, was inspired by the poem to set up the highly successful Invictus Games for injured service personnel. In 1894, Henley and his wife needed to draw upon the Invictus spirit more than ever, when their much-loved little daughter Margaret died at the age of five. With her flaxen hair, bright eyes and merry laugh, Margaret had captivated all who met her and was known as the Golden Child. Her father, as editor of the National Observer, was friendly with many of the prominent writers of the age, and one who fell under Margaret's spell was the playwright James Barry. Margaret saw how her father greeted Barry as my friend, and whenever he visited she would fling herself into his arms, crying with her little lisp, Fwendy, Fwendy! And so it was that one of the most famous little girls in children's literature, Wendy from Peter Pan, came by her name. Margaret was buried at Cocaine Hatley in this heavenly churchyard beneath the ash tree as the spring leaves were burgeoning. At the suggestion of Henley's friend, Lady Diana Cooper's father, Harry Cust, who owned the hall. Diana's mother, the Duchess of Rutland, was staying at the hall at the time with her children, including Diana, and they all attended the funeral, processing from the hall to Margaret's grave with armfuls of flowers led by the eldest child, nine-years-old Robert, Lord Haddon, who, like everyone else, had adored Margaret. But fate was not yet done with the children of Cocaine Hatley. 
For as that same summer was fading to gold, nine-year-old Robert, too, died. Henley was so moved, he wrote of Robert, That day we brought our beautiful one to lie in the green peace within your gates. He came to give us greeting, boyish and kind and shy. And stricken as we were, we blessed his name. Yet, like the creature of light that had been ours, soon of the sweet earth disinherited he too must join, even with the years old flowers, the unanswering generations of the dead. Cocaine Hatley, a quiet corner of England, where children's laughter plays hide-and-seek with melancholy among the trees. Stop 2, Hemingford Grey, Huntingdonshire. The delicate loveliness of England is seen here at its best. So said the writer Arthur Mee of the village of Hemingford Grey in 1939. And it remains as true today as it was then. Gaily painted cottages of every style, thatched, brick, Georgian, stone and half-timbered, line the narrow lanes that wind down to the tranquil Great Ouse River as it flows by the Norman church of St. James with its oddly capped tower. The church spire blew off in a storm in 1741 and is said to still lie at the bottom of the river. The picture-perfect setting of Hemingford Grey has long attracted artists, one of them being the now somewhat forgotten Edwardian painter of domestic scenes and pursuits, Walter Dendy Sadler who lived in the village from 1897 to his death in 1923 at River View, a handsome three-storey Georgian house blessed, appropriately enough, with a view of the river. We can learn much about what Edwardian Hemingford Grey and its people looked like through Sadler's paintings, for he used local people and buildings as models, painting them in 18th century settings with comical expressions on their faces, illustrating human foibles, such as greed or cheerfulness or bewilderment. Sadler's works were immensely popular in their day, and his painting Thursday, which shows a group of jovial Franciscan monks fishing for their Friday supper, was one of the first three paintings in Sir Henry Tate's eponymous collection. In 1904, along with the vicar of Hemingford Grey, the Reverend Barham Holland, 
Dendi Sadler co-founded the Hemingfords Regatta, which has been held on the Great Ouse ever since, uninterrupted except by the occasional war or flood, and is the oldest village rowing regatta in the country. Another oldest in Hemingford Grey is the moated manor house built in 1130 and with a strong claim to being the oldest continuously inhabited house in England. In 1939 it became the home and inspiration of children's author Lucy Boston, known for her stories about a very old house called Green No, which was based on the manor. The novels were written there between 1954 and 1976 and were illustrated by her son Peter. And to visit the manor today, it is open to the public by appointment, is to step straight into the Green No books, for many of the features of the house and garden are recognisable, both from Lucy's descriptions and Peter Boston's illustrations. A little over 200 years before Lucy Boston arrived in Hemingford, two little girls were born in the manor, who would grow up from their humble origins to become Georgian celebrities, the most beautiful women of their time and the toast of London society. The Gunning sisters, Maria and Elizabeth, were the daughters of an impoverished Irish barrister called John Gunning and his actress wife Bridget, who were forced to lease the manor at Hemingford Grey after Gunning lost most of his money at gambling. The two daughters grew in beauty at Hemingford, and even drew the attention of the local poet William Cowper, who met them while walking his dog beside the river. Two nymphs adorned with every grace that spaniel found for me. After going back to Ireland for a few years to live in Castle Coote, a fine Georgian house in County Roscommon that Gunning won in a game of poker, the family returned to Hemingford in 1750 with a plan to introduce Maria and Elizabeth to London society. The girls attended all the right balls and dances and were an instant sensation, declared by all to be the handsomest women alive. Adoring crowds flocked to see them wherever they went. When presented at court, even the king, dry old George II, fell for their charms while courtiers and aristocrats clambered up onto chairs to get a better look. Maria, said to have been the more beautiful of the sisters, married the Earl of Coventry in 1752, but it was not a happy marriage, and she died a few years afterwards at the age of just 27, from blood poisoning caused by the lead in the fashionable rouge she insisted on wearing on her face. Elizabeth Gunning was more fortunate, she married the Duke of Hamilton, by whom she had two sons. And after he died in 1758, she married the Duke of Argyll, by whom she had two more sons. Thus, the poor but beauteous Irish girl from Hemingford Grey ended up the mother of four dukes. Just another chapter in the long history of Hemingford Grey, where... The delicate loveliness of England... And, of course, Ireland... ...is seen here at its best. Thank you.
Stop 3. Stoke Dry, Rutland. A few stone houses and an unusual-looking church on the side of a hill, with views across the Eyebrook Reservoir, where the Lancaster Bombers of 617 Squadron, the Dam Busters, practised their bombing runs. Stoke Dry is a place where nothing much untoward could ever happen, save perhaps for the rector dropping a baby into the font. Oops. Or is it? Could it be here, in the room with the beautiful oriel window above the church porch, that one of the most devilish plots ever devised was hatched? Could this be where, in the late summer of 1605, Sir Everard Digby, Robert Catesby, Francis Tresham and others secretly drew up plans to blow up the Houses of Parliament with the King, James I and the whole of Parliament inside it. The intriguing possibility that Demure Stoke Dry was the home of the gunpowder plot arises from the simple fact that the manor of Stoke Dry was, at the time, the main home of one of the chief plotters, Sir Everard Digby. Alas, nothing remains of the manor house where he was born in 1578, except for a few stones in the garden wall of the rectory. What does survive, however, is the room above the church porch, which was built in the reign of Elizabeth I as a private chamber for the rector and would have made a perfect bolt-hole for Digby and his Catholic friends, away from the prying eyes of Protestant informers. Their hopes that the new King James I, baptised a Catholic, would put an end to the persecution of Catholics in England, had been sorely disappointed, and they were determined to do something about it. In the end, of course, the gunpowder plot was uncovered, and Everard Digby, despite being the only plotter to give himself up, was hung, drawn and quartered along with his co-conspirators. Today you can climb the cramped and winding stair to the tumble-down room above the porch, admire the exquisite oriel window and decide for yourself whether you think this is one of England's more portentous chambers. The church conceals other mysteries too. Displayed on the walls of the Digby Chapel are some 14th century wall paintings showing the martyrdom of St Edmund, King of the East Angles and the first patron saint of England. He is seen skewered to a tree by no less than 17 arrows, but is somehow still smiling. One of the two tiny archers firing at him is wearing a feathered headdress remarkably similar to those worn by American Indians, as depicted in Hollywood westerns. Could it be that Europeans had visited America long before Columbus and brought back reports of such warriors? The other archer is wearing what looks like Norman headgear, while St Christopher, who is carrying the baby Jesus, and watching the scene rather austerely, appears to have a lampshade on his head. Nowhere else 
Is there a picture of St. Christopher in such a hat? Old hat for some, maybe. But then nowhere else in the whole of England is there such a delightful display of three different types of extraordinary historic headwear. A stoke-dry hat trick, you might say. To finish off, amongst the lively carvings on the shafts of the Norman chancel arch is the earliest known depiction in the whole country of a bell-ringer, with below the devil running away from the sound. You need not ask for whom the bell tolls. It tolled for Sir Everard Digby and his companions. Stop 4. Leicester, Leicestershire. It was a warm summer evening in August 1485 when King Richard III arrived in Leicester from Nottingham to join up with the Duke of Norfolk and his men and prepare for battle against the man who would eventually take the throne of England from him, Henry Tudor. On previous visits to Leicester, Richard had stayed in the town's Norman castle, once an impressive royal residence favoured by John of Gaunt, Duke of Lancaster, who died there in 1399. But since it was associated so strongly with the House of Lancaster, Richard, who was of the House of York, let the castle decay, and it was no longer fit for a king. So Richard spent the night in the newly built and extravagantly timber-framed White Boar Inn on the High Street, named after his own royal emblem. Little knowing that this would be the last night he would ever spend in his own bed, a grand four-poster which he took with him everywhere since he found it difficult to sleep in a strange bed. The Earl of Northumberland arrived in Leicester with his forces the next morning, swelling the King's ranks to some 12,000 men, the largest army ever assembled in England. And together they rode forth from the town. King Richard at their fore, resplendent on his white horse, the crown of England on his head, sparkling in the sun. As he crossed the river Saw, on the old Bow Bridge out of town, Richard's spur struck the stone balustrade, causing a cackling old crone in the watching crowd to prophesy that on his return to Leicester, the king's uncrowned head would strike the very same spot. And she was right. At Bosworth Field the next day, in the last significant battle of the Wars of the Roses, Richard lost his horse. Oh, horse, oh, horse, my kingdom, his crown, his kingdom, and his life. The last English king to die in battle. His mutilated, naked body was slung over a horse and brought back to Leicester. And as they entered the city across Bow Bridge, Richard's head, which was hanging low to the ground, struck 
the stone parapet. As foretold. After being put on public display in the Church of the Annunciation for two days, Richard's body was removed by the Greyfriars and buried in a simple grave in the choir of the Friary Church. And so Richard III, last of the House of York, last of the Plantagenets, who had ruled England for 331 years, and last of the medieval kings, was laid to rest. The White Boar Inn, where Richard had stayed, swiftly changed its name to the Blue Boar Inn, honouring the emblem of the new King Henry VII's general, John de Vere, the Earl of Oxford, while Richard's great bed, which had remained at the inn awaiting his return, stayed where it was in pride of place in the Blue Boar. The bed became the object of considerable speculation, for it was rumoured that Richard had hidden a hoard of gold coins in a secret drawer in the bed, but it was never found, until a little over a hundred years later, at the turn of the 17th century, the then landlord of the Blue Boar, Thomas Clark, mysteriously became rich, enough to be appointed Lord Mayor of Leicester. Everyone was convinced that Clark had found Richard's stash, and a year or so after he died, Clark's wife Agnes, who had taken over as landlord, was murdered by a gang of thieves, who apparently got away with several bags of gold, before being apprehended and hung. Subsequent landlords struck gold themselves, by charging a penny a time for people to see the infamous King Richard's bedstead at Leicester until the inn was demolished in the mid-19th century and the bed ended up with Leicestershire Museum Service and is now on display at Donington Le Heath Manor House near Colville, 12 miles away. The site of the Blue Boar is now occupied fittingly enough, by a travel lodge. Leicester Castle has largely disappeared, with just the impressive mot still standing alongside the 12th century Great Hall, the oldest surviving aisled and bay-divided timber hall in Britain. The last monarch to stay there was, spookily enough, Richard III in 1483. The stone bow bridge across which Richard departed and then returned was replaced by an iron bridge in 1863. A plaque next to the bridge recalls a widely held belief that Richard's body was dug up by the people of Leicester when the friary was destroyed at the dissolution of the monasteries in 1539 and the bones thrown off bow bridge into the river Saw. and so did one of our least loved and most maligned kings pass out of memory. Almost. Almost. 
supporters of Richard III through the ages, never gave up hope that his body had not in fact been desecrated, and in 2012 their hopes were realised when the skeleton of a man in his 30s, showing signs of severe battle injuries, was uncovered in a council car park, built on the former site of the Friary Church where he was allegedly buried. Tests revealed that this was indeed Richard III, and in 2015 his remains were interred in Leicester Cathedral, where his splendid new tomb can be seen today. Richard's original burial place can be glimpsed beneath a glass walkway in the Richard III Visitor Centre. Leicester, it seems, is once more fit for a king. God save Richard, England's royal king. Stop 5. Salgrave Manor, Northamptonshire. Salgrave Manor, it could be argued, is the birthplace of the United States of America. How so, you ask? Well... Here, in 1602, was born one Lawrence Washington, later the Reverend Lawrence Washington. His son John Washington emigrated to Virginia in 1656, settled on some land that would one day be called Mount Vernon, and found himself the great-grandfather of the first President of the United States of America, George Washington. But let's back up a bit. Salgrave Manor, a small stone Tudor manor house, sitting on the edge of a pretty village in gentle countryside about 15 miles southwest of the county town of Northampton, was begun in 1540 by the Reverend Lawrence Washington's great grandfather, also called Lawrence Washington a wealthy wool merchant from Lancashire, who would become twice mayor of Northampton. He had purchased the manor of Sulgrave from the Crown, after the estate was confiscated from the Priory of St Andrew at Northampton, as part of the dissolution of the monasteries in 1539. The first Lawrence Washington, and hence all the other Washingtons in this story, was a direct descendant of one Sir Walter de Wessingham, of the manor of Wessingham in County Durham, who died bravely fighting for Henry III at the Battle of Lewis in 1264. And it was perhaps from this warrior ancestor that President George Washington came by his military prowess. And it was also perhaps providential that Sir Walter's father took the name of his manor of Wessingham, which evolved into Washington, for his own family name, as the original family name was Hartburn. President George Hartburn? I don't think so. But I digress.
Northamptonshire is known as the County of Spires and Squires, and Sulgrave Manor was Lawrence Washington's way of announcing his arrival as one of those squires. Although modest in size, it has all the essential elements of a gentleman's home. An oak-beamed great hall with a huge fireplace for entertaining. A private great chamber upstairs. Stylish brick chimneys, leaded windows and fine furniture. The Lawrence Washington who built Sulgrave Manor died in 1584 and is buried with his second wife Amy, with whom he had 11 children, in front of the family pew in the largely 14th century village church of St James the Less. The manor house passed to his eldest son Robert, who in turn passed it on to his son Lawrence, who sold it to a cousin Lawrence Makepeace in 1610 and half a century later, Sulgrave Manor passed out of the Washington family. 250 years went by before it came to the fore once more, by which time the family who built Sulgrave Manor had built an entire nation. In 1914, Sulgrave Manor, by now badly neglected, was purchased by public subscription, with funds raised in both countries to commemorate a century of peace between Britain and the United States, since the 1814 Treaty of Ghent, which had ended the War of 1812. Thanks to an endowment by the colonial dames of America, it is now held in trust as a permanent symbol of Anglo-American friendship and uniquely, Sulgrave Manor is owned equally by the people of Britain and America, and hence both the Union Jack and the Stars and Stripes fly outside the house. Talking of the Stars and Stripes, carved in stone on the wall of the porch above the front door are the mullets and bars of the Washington family coat of arms, three red stars above two red stripes, Surely the inspiration for the design of the Star-Spangled Banner. Above this, carved on the gable of the porch, is the royal coat of arms of Elizabeth I, an indication that the Washingtons enjoyed the special favour of the Queen. Indeed, Local legend has it that Elizabeth, when a princess, had been hidden in the attic at Sulgrave after having escaped from nearby Woodstock Palace where she had been imprisoned by her sister Mary. The Washingtons were indeed great royalists, a position which did them no favours when Oliver Cromwell came to power. And in 1643, during the English Civil War, the Reverend Lawrence Washington, the one born at Sulgrave Manor in 1602, was expelled from his living at Purley in Essex by the Puritans. And during the Commonwealth of Cromwell, the Washingtons were dispossessed of their lands and titles. And this is what spurred on Lawrence's son John Washington to emigrate to America in 1656. It is surely ironic that the ancestors of the first president of the world's most powerful republic were driven from the land of their birth for being too royalist. 
Anyway, Sulgrave Manor, a fine example of an almost unchanged small Elizabethan manor house, has been restored as much as possible to how it was in the time of the Washingtons. Filled with 16th and 17th century furniture, mementos of 800 years of Washington family history, and the biggest collection of George Washington memorabilia outside the US. His black velvet overcoat, his saddlebags from the encampment at Valley Forge, a lock of his hair, his oak liquor box, a painted mahogany Heppelwhite style chair he owned. Most intriguing is a piece of elm tree taken from the Washington elm that formerly stood at Sulgrave, but succumbed, alas, to Dutch elm disease in the 1960s. The Washington elm itself was grown from a shoot of the elm tree at Cambridge, Massachusetts, under which Washington stood when he took command of the American army in July 1775, at a pivotal moment in the American Revolution. The magnificent Great Hall at Sulgrave Manor is laid out as it would have been set for Lawrence Washington to greet his guests, with a long oak dining table and oak benches and chairs. Hanging above the fireplace is an original of the celebrated Gilbert Stuart Athenaeum portrait of George Washington as president, used on the dollar bill, and thereby hangs a mystery. For Gilbert Stuart painted George Washington's left profile, and yet on the dollar bill, the president is depicted right profile. Well, that concludes our tour of the East Midlands. In the next episode, we visit the West Midlands, taking in a ride on the world's first bicycle in Warwickshire, three Cotswold villages in Gloucestershire with literary connections, a trip to the moon from Herefordshire, a view of the whole of Middle England from the Malvern Hills in Worcestershire, and the house in Birmingham where the modern world began. This has been an I Never Knew That production, brought to you by Christopher Wynne and guest stars Rupert Van Sittert and Emma Van Sittert. Find out more at ChristopherWynne'sINeverKnewThat.com and check out the I Never Knew That books, available online and at all good bookshops. Thanks for listening. If you have enjoyed this podcast, please rate and review. And join me again next time to discover more tales that will make you want to exclaim again and again, I never knew that.